everybody and welcome to the very 119th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games which are increasingly relevant and yet increasingly hard to play in a post-pandemic world. My name is Quentin Smith and I am joined on this podcast by the lovely Tom Brewster. Hello. And the lovelier Ava Foxfort. I'm lovely. I, I ranked you two there. weren't expecting that, that were yes. you? Absolutely savage. <laughs> On this podcast, we're going to be uh, savaging one another a little bit. I have a feeling there's going to be lots of uh, lots of disagreements on this one. In our running order, we're going to be talking about the cute little card game Village Green, a game about taking trees, taking flowers, and doing your best to make a life out of them. We're going to be talking about Glasgow, a game for just two players, about creating an industrial city centre and bickering over who gets the whiskey. We're going to be talking about Crypt Hunters, the new game from... Okay, it's from Games Workshop, but our podcasting doc says Gloam's Workshop. For some reason, <laughs> someone thought that was funny, and I'm going to be finding out who uh, after we're done with this recording. And to round everything off, we're going to be having an enormous discussion about no less than four of the games of perhaps the greatest board game designer ever made, Rainer Knizia. We're going to be talking about Rainer's classic games Through the Desert and Tigris and Euphrates, and his updates to them, Blue Lagoon and Yellow and Yangtze, one of which we like, another of which we don't. I've been hanging out in the Village Green with Pierre Sylvester's Village Green, uh, which describes itself as a game of pretty gardens and petty grudges, which I thought was quite a strong theme that I was looking forward to digging into because I live in England where the concept of villages having an enormous amount of like community ego is vivid, shall we say. <laughs> A lot of our, our listeners are Americans, so how would we describe a village green to them? Because the words that come to my mind are passive aggression, but I grew up in London and not villages, so that's probably unfair. <laughs> I, d- I didn't grow up with a village green, but there were villages nearby, and a village green is kind of, in theory, it's supposed to be like almost a little community centre, and you expect to see families having picnics and people playing cricket, and mm. occasionally like a fate uh, which is a gathering of tables with cakes on, I think, mm-hmm. um, is the quickest description of that. Um, I think you, you yes, that. But it's something where everybody in the village gets to get together and complain about each other quietly <laughs> under their breath whilst with their louder top notes saying, oh, that's lovely. Thanks for the lovely broccoli. Um <laughs> Maybe I'm just making England sound even more absurd than it is. No, that's not possible. It's a horrible place. (laughs) Um, Anyway, Village Green is a card game, and it's from Osprey Games, uh, designed by Pierre Sylvester, who I'm quite fond of, even though I'm a bit hit and miss with uh, his actual games. Village Green is a game about assembling uh, garden cards into a particular array. So each of these green cards has a lovely little illustration of a garden feature, and a couple of icons at the bottom, and a much more important icon in the uh, top left. These will be th- of three different flowers. Each of those flowers, flowers. Each of those flowers comes in three different colours. When you're placing these green cards, the thing that immediately turns this game into like an incredibly knotty little 
ah, is <laughs> that when you place a card, you have to place it so that it matches either the flower or the color of every card it is next to. Whoa. Every okay. card. Like we started off playing it thinking that it was, uh, you had to match one card and it was just like a little bit of collecting. But no, the second you put anything down on your board, you are making it impossible to play most cards in most places. Oh, God. Um, uh, to actually get points from this, you're collecting award cards, which go around the outside of your main three by three grid of green cards. Um, and will tell you what you'll score points for in that column um, or that row. Um, this is quite sweet because each of these award cards is named after a particular thing. So it'll have like a person's name or it'll be the, the award for garden diversity, um, which will want you to have lots of different flowers or lots of different trees or et cetera, so on and so forth. And it sounds like a really nice, sharp little game where you are... Yeah, you're fitting things into this. You've got a bit of restriction about what you can put down. Um, in theory, you're taking cards from um, a shared market, so you might be grabbing something that your opponent really wants. And it just doesn't quite sing. I'm sorry. Mm. I'm sorry, Pierre. And I'm sorry, Village <laughs> Green. But um, I, it lacked... As a, as a multiplayer game, I played it with two players. It might be possible. There's a small chance it gets a little bit more elbow nudgy with more players. <laughs> but with two players, I didn't really care what my opponent was doing. I was just doing my own thing. And it felt like the entire game basically hinged around whether I could get, whether I could draw blindly from the deck to get the best cards for my setup. When I did, I won. When I didn't, I lost. Um, like it felt much more about the luck of the draw than about um, nudging each other or getting in each other's way. However, I do have a feeling that that means it would be really tasty as a solo game. Uh, the solo game plays almost exactly the same as the as the multiplayer game, um, with just a couple of restrictions on what actions you can take at what time. But um, I think that that would be much more of a kind of like because you're just battling yourself and you're just trying to better yourself, that luck of the draw thing doesn't become quite so punishing. No, so uh, this is a bit awkward, but when you talk about this potentially being a good solo game, of course, when I was covering solo games uh, a few months ago, um, a game called Mr. Cabbagehead's Garden is also about planting sort of cards into a garden to try and acquire very British bucolic awards from your neighbours. Um, but I'd be remiss not, for, not to mention Mr. Cabbagehead's Garden is a free print and play game and entirely designed from the ground up for one player and very good so uh, I don't mean to sort of throw a dart in your suggestion that this might be a good one player game but I had a pretty good time hanging out in Mr. Cabbagehead's Garden mm. yeah it's interesting um, for me like one of the problems is that like uh, I don't know if you've ever played Herbaceous uh, oh I have yes them. Like, the card game that I could not enjoy because it didn't allow me to hold cards. I mean, that game uh, That game taught me that it turns out what I enjoy the most in card games is holding cards. And if you don't let me do that, I will properly eject all of my toys from the pram. Wow, <laughs> you're actually ridiculous, Quinns. Herbaceous <laughs> 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 is brilliant. Herbaceous is a really, really, really sharp and pointy game. And the thing that's interesting about it is that that doesn't have a theme that's supposed to be about passive aggression and nudging. But like whenever I've ended up describing this to people, I've started describing like a headcanon that is like rural people building herb gardens on your balconies in a block of flats that is around a little shared community garden. And the shared community garden is run 
with an iron fist by a <laughs> by a, a tenants association that insist that you have to and use the community garden in precisely this one way and and it's perfect and it makes for this perfect little like tutting at your neighbors and and oh yeah grumpy shaming of each other and yeah i don't know a game that doesn't go out to sell the theme of village green i think nailed the theme of village green more than more than this did well Um, definitely it's it might be a little troubling that in talking about village green what we've gotten really excited to do is recommend mr cabbage head's garden and herbaceous yeah yeah telling certainly It's, it's it's hard it's 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 a nice little game it's cute um if you are a bit happier uh basically pushing you doing a push of that game and and um not worrying too much about strategy and if and if you if your view of village greens is that they're this really like lovely cute thing where where people get together and and try and make something nice and then like go ah that was nice uh then maybe it'll be your thing but um (laughs) i would definitely i would definitely recommend you get herbaceous first Let's all just take a second to tip our cap to Osprey Games, though, publishers of Village Green, who have put out another absolutely gorgeous box with a great theme. I mean, in terms of art design and presentation and theming, this is a, a British publisher that's just going from strength to strength. It is it is gorgeous. And I just want to grab, just give me one second here. I just want to grab, like, the award names are just adorable. <laughs> the Award for Diversity of Hard and Soft Wood. That's one of them. The, the Rosie Redford Award, which uh, gets you points for having a lot of red roses, checks out. Uh, <laughs> award for Floral Diversity. I don't know. It's just, it is really sweet. Are the village names good as well? Yeah, the village, yeah. And then the village names are very villagey. I think, like, I think this is probably one of those things that might actually just be better if you're not English. <laughs> and you don't know village greens as well. It's, it's good for, for naive players of games yeah. or naive english people who really think the best of the village green but you, your sort of like nihilistic bleak view of england <laughs> is maybe tainting your takes on <laughs> Pierce sylvester's design we're gonna take a fun detour now from the charming village greens of village green to the glasgow of Glasgow. Nice. A game. That, <laughs> thank you. What a beautiful segue for a beautiful day. Um, Ava and I have both been playing some of Glasgow, uh, designed by Mandela Fernandez Grandon. Apologies if I just got your name wrong. Uh, and published by Lookout Games in their new For Two Players series. Glasgow is a strange little game uh it's got two kind of components to it the first is a rondle wheel of these tiles that you're going to be moving around and collecting resources from and a rondle means that whoever's last gets to go first so the more spaces you go forward the more spaces you're giving your opponent to jump forward on on their go and it has that component and then in the center of this rondle wheel is a grid of tiles that you're going to be adding to from the start of the game. And essentially the way that the game works, you go around the Ronald wheel and you gather resources such as bricks and iron and money and whiskey, which is wild, um, interspersed with the occasional sort of weird tile. Like there's one that gives you double actions and there's one that lets you activate factories. And we'll talk about those in a bit. But the essential goal of the game is to sort of fill a four by five grid of tiles in the center of this rondel by landing on these architect spaces on the rondel, which let you pay money to add tiles to the grid. 
I've been playing a little bit of Glasgow because I love a little two-player game and was thinking about covering it for Chess Month, but wasn't like madly smitten by it. I thought it was rather good, but not amazing. But I think, Ava, you thought it was really great? I, I like it's somewhere between really great and rather good. Like I, I, definitely, <laughs> I, I get the impression I liked it more than you did. Like I, th- I think yeah. it's quite sharp in some quite interesting ways, whilst being like a fairly straightforward set of things to explain. Like if I wanted to like intro someone to like the concept of like slightly economic efficiency games, <laughs> and wanted to give them like the simplest taste possible of that, that was still right. like a solidly interesting game. This could be what I'd point them at. This could be what I'd say, hey, let's give this a go. Set it up. I I, I partly like it because it's just got some like thorough ridiculousnesses in it. And I love a thorough ridiculousness in a game. Like my, the two examples, the two main examples being, firstly, the circle of tiles around the outside that you're taking actions on uh, represents the River Clyde, a famously <laughs> very circular river. <laughs> Um, is that true no of course it's not circular <laughs> like, it's... i haven't been to glasgow all right oh, the stories I, mean, I hear it has a weird one of the things i like about the fact that it claims that the clyde is circular is that whenever i've gone in the center of glasgow and tried to re- re- work around by myself i turn back on myself and i get really confused i'm pretty sure that there's a little chunk of it that is entirely non-euclidean <laughs> um, so it would almost make sense for Clyde to uh, be a circle, but it's just not quite true. Uh, the other thing is that not only is whiskey as wild, but there's only one whiskey in the game, yes. which means if you collect it uh, and your opponent still has it in their warehouse, uh, you just t- you just steal it. You just steal it from them, <laughs> um, which unfortunately doesn't happen as often as you think it's to when you read that in the rules, because there's only one slot tile that gets you whiskey. So it's like a whole circuit of the board. So someone will have found a need for a wild resource by then. Um, but it does stop you holding on to it, which I guess is a thing that you want to do thematically with whiskey in Scotland is make <laughs> it be something that you just immediately net. Um but yeah, I I thought it was really sharp. I think the addition of the factories is a really like clever little way of doing things. So the trick with the factory, so most of the tiles are about scoring. And when you place them, like parks, you'll get more points the more of them you get. Shops do well if they're in the corners. So sorry, um, like Village Green, is this a game where you are taking in that game cards and in this game tiles, but then sort of using them in both games to build out a grid of sort of holdings yeah yeah you're building a grid of holdings but you are both building the same grid you're both building the city center at the same time so each tile has a little arrow on it that tells you which way it's pointing and that says who owns it that that was a really nice touch that i thought when i was looking at the the tiles and i was going like how like yeah but like sure i build this but how do i show my ownership but because it's two players you just have the arrows pointing in whichever direction is facing each player mm-hmm. and that means you can play it at like weird angles as well as long as you're like at least you know like 90 degrees from each other <laughs> um you can point it however you want yeah 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 um which was like that was actually something that completely baffled me when i tried to describe it in the games news and i was like but how do you know what buildings <laughs> are yours it doesn't tell you and then i like looked at the game for like two seconds and was like Oh, right. Yeah, I see. (laughs) Um, uh, But that really works. Um, And yeah, so most of the tiles are about getting points um, at the end of the game. Uh, But factories get you stuff during the game. But the way they work is that anytime you add something, you or your opponent add something to the same row or column as a factory, it triggers and you get stuff. 
So it's got a little but, bit of that. Your turn might actually be helping out your opponent better than yours. Oh, um, so if you put a tile in a row which has my factory, I get a brick or whatever. Mm, this is, exactly. I mean, Tom, Ava's starting to make this sound real good. Do you want to <laughs> make it sound less good? <laughs> like, well, I think that it's a thing where I can't get that excited about it. I really enjoyed it. Like, I think it's a it's a good little game. But I think that both Ava and I maybe sit in the same position where it's like, it's very good. Like, it's a really competent, nice design. And the way that it uses um, kind of familiar mechanics and kind of twists them into a way that's a little bit more compelling than the sum of its parts is interesting. But it's not sufficiently more than the sum of its parts that I'm, like, smitten with it. I think that one thing that I really wanted to focus on that I think is a really nice little stroke of genius is that we t we're talking about building this grid in the center. Um, there's no board to build that grid on. So it's going to be a four by five grid, but in the course of making it, the players define which side is the five side and which is the four side. Um, oh, cool. Which is super clever when you think about the way that some of the tiles interact with each other. So for example, you have these tenement blocks that gain um, more, the more of them you place adjacent to each other, the more points they're worth. But obviously you can, you can limit your opponent's options by making it so that they're wedged in the corner and you can only ever have two adjacent to them or something like that. And then there's a tile, the shop tile, which will only score you points if it's a corner of the grid. But of course, because you're defining what that <laughs> grid is, you can really screw over your opponent by making it just not a corner. <laughs> um, or alternatively, you can make it a corner by placing something in a way that defines that side as being the five side or the four side. Yeah. Um, so it's a really clever little piece of design. Like I really enjoyed it, um, but I'm not in that smitten like it's incredible like it's not the hot new two-player thing you know um, yeah i don't know i mean so one of the things that i really liked about that um that four by five thing and that like defining of the grid is that like it meant that it felt to me and and how i was playing with like um the game almost had two phases like there's yes. this like slow exploratory you're just doing stuff for whatever reason and you don't really you're not too fussed about it you're just trying to be efficient and grab some stuff and place some buildings down and then as soon as you've got the shape of the grid, everything suddenly like hones down and it's like, right, mm. now I know what this puzzle is and I can try and squeeze the most, the most out of this. And so it just tilted into this extra, this second phase that was a little bit harder, a little bit nastier, a little bit more, more kind of predictable. And, and there's something really nice about that. That's something that like kind of opens up for a while and then gets, then gets sharper and pointier. Um, I don't know. I just think it was. I think it was elegant and um, and sharp. Elegant and sharp. Like I thought, it did the job really well of like introducing some interesting con concept, giving you a little bit of a bite against each other, but also quite a lot of the tiles. It doesn't really matter where they are. So you're just putting them in a place to irritate someone else or to activate your factories. Um, like it's not like it's not like you have to really like get really like deep and nasty about exactly where you're going to place things like it's fairly obvious what your options are and what you can do and yeah i thought it worked really well like i, I think um I th i'd like to play it more before i was like this is actually great um <laughs> uh but the the af after a couple of plays i'm like i'm really into it i'm going to be showing that to quite a lot of people um, does it feel like glasgow um, I mean, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what, my, my answer to that is, um, 
it feels like building an industrial city probably was like <laughs> like actually there's only two people who own anything uh, the factories <laughs> spring up and then they just build everything else purely for the sake of making those factories more efficient and they don't <laughs> like there's 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 a representation of like the weirdness of industry that is like yes you build a factory but that factory is actually useless on its own you need to build people nearby who will actually activate that factory or make it work and it does it does stuff like that it does like just a little bit of economic narrative with like barely any rules and in a really like simple fun way it's simple fun industrialization is what you're saying <laughs> industrialization made fun and easy um the thing one of the things actually i really wanted um that i've got in my little notes that i really wanted to mention about glasgow though that i thought is super special um, I read the design diary um, from the designer and they really had a sort of portability factor in mind with the box. And it really, really shows because that rondel that you're making, like, and the fact there's no board and the fact that the grid just goes wherever you want it means that like it's super easy to set this up like anywhere. Um, I think he said like he wanted a game that he could play on, like an economic industrialization buildy game that you could play on a train and you can play it outdoors because there's no cards and there's like nice and chunky components that aren't gonna like blow away in the wind or whatever and that's i don't know that's something i just wanted to bring up because i think it's really like it's sweet it's such a sweet little package yeah it's it's interesting right the board game scene really likes when things are small but that's different from actually being able to play them outside which is what i really look for like hive pocket you know having plastic pieces and no board or trying to think of anything else and can't you know it's the idea that games can be ever so slightly windproof like that Mm. is so much more exciting to me than we made this really small but if you leave a card in a sunbeam it will turn into a potato chip did did, did that actually make sense do you know what i'm talking about where cards go and bend up on all the corners if you leave them in a sunbeam i've never had it happen but i can imagine it it's because my flat has all these massive windows you know i know woe is me but like it means that if i leave a game out like and all the cards are like by themselves then they will all just go and bend up on the edges that's my struggle (laughs) my name's quentin smith and this has been my difficulty yeah, you were very close to saying something very bad there. <laughs> I really, I, I did not. Let's move on. <laughs> I didn't actually say anything problematic there, right? Or... I mean, my struggle, um, my struggle is the translation of Mein Kampf. I think is what. Uh... Oh, yeah. f- <laughs> I was riffing off like the struggle is real type, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. No, but it didn't come across as like you being like <laughs> putting latent Nazi imagery into your board game podcast. Great. <laughs> From the beautiful, gorgeous streets of Glasgow to the grim underhive of some bobbins place in the Age of Sigma. I can't remember. There's a name for the crypt. I can look it up. I can look it up. The 10,000 Tombs. I'm quaking in my in my grim dark boots already yeah, it still sounds like scotland to me i don't Ten- know <laughs> <laughs> i mean the glasgow necropolis is actually amazing and probably does have ten thousand tombs so why is the glasgow necropolis not in glasgow the board game why is the glasgow necropolis not in games workshops expanded <laughs> <universe>? <laughs> um i mean there is there is one um, I, I did really like glasgow so i'm just gonna say the uh, monument cards are real places from Glasgow. Like the monument yeah. tiles that you can build, they are real things. And the little statue that always gets the traffic cone on its head 
does have a little traffic cone traffic on its cone. head, even though that's a historic for the uh, time that the game is describing. <laughs> anyway, crypt hunters, <laughs> let's go hunting some crypts. Ava, I don't, I don't want to spoil this, but you told me this game was bad. I did tell you this game was bad, but now you've like lost the surprise that I was going to give you. Crypt Hunters is by Games Workshop. It's not amazing. <laughs> That's not all I'm going to say. I thought okay. about it, but I thought I should actually say something. Crypt Hunters as Crypt Hunters. The reason why I want to talk about it, like normally a game, if a game like had a play of a game and it fell this flat, I wouldn't even want to talk about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But Crypt Hunters had something really annoying of being like. I could see potential in it for some really interesting ideas. So I kind of want to describe some of those ideas um, uh, as quickly as possible. Um, uh, It's new from Games Workshop. It's part of the Warhammer Age of Sigmar line. Um, It's got some lovely little miniatures in it. It is the, uh, oh, what are they even called? The Thunder Thunder Boys. The Thundercats, yes. The Thunder Boys are coming. To crypto hunt, hunt, hunt. I I was no. Tom. I was ready to be impressed when you pulled that off. Unfortunately, <laughs> what happened? Was, I'm too junior in this company. Yeah, you did not have the stats to to roll your way out of that one. It uh, doesn't matter because it gave me enough chance to look and find out. They're called Stormcast Eternals. There we go. Wow. Um, which doesn't go as closely with the Venger Boys, sadly. <laughs> But anyway, so the Venger boys are digging through no, this. Pr- no, no, no. <laughs> the, the real... Pi- use the real names. I have to get the emails from Games Workshop fans. <laughs> oh, okay. Oris Suresight and the Storm Eternals. Thank you. Um, are plowing through the 10,000 tombs, looking for something that will defeat all of the undead ghosts that are... Sorry, they're not ghosts. They're chain rasps. <sighs> I'm just going to tease this to our audience. You got this because you are the Games Workshop fan among all of us. <laughs> That's not what I said, Quinns. I said I like orcs. <laughs> oh, right, you can't yes. be a Games Workshop fan without a certain degree of like total apathy and shame for Games Workshop. <laughs> Uh, you can be, what I but gather. it makes you a bad person. No, that's not true. I didn't mean that, anyone. It's, it's totally okay to love Games Workshop. There's like some really interesting stuff out there. Um, the miniatures are lovely. And yeah. some of the uh, theme and fluff is really exciting and interesting. Like I do genuinely yeah. get really excited by little bits of the uh, universe. However, this game is a bit crap. So <laughs> I'm going into it with a kind of like trying to make this as fun and entertaining as possible. And the best thing I can do is say that like, it's kind of hilarious that there's a character called Astrid the Deliverer who, who, <laughs> who sounds like a space postman. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The Stormcast Eternals are there. They're going through the dungeons. They're being attacked by these uh, ghosty chain rasp things. And there was a promise there. There was a promise. Like, you would be, so you could be some hyper-powerful uh, spacey beans. They're not in space. They're not beans. <laughs> Going through a thing, being beset on all sides. If anyone knows their Games Workshop history, they'll know that sounds like just a little bit like it could have been Space Hulk. And this could have mm. been a game that was trying to be like a quick, sharp, cheap version of uh, that actually very good Um Dungeon crawler in space, only not in space. Also with an asterisk next to the word good. 
and if you yeah. the asterisk, it says <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So yeah, so Crypt Hunters does not capture that feeling of being like beset on all sides and attacked. And that is because of the other idea that I thought was going to be really good and exciting about this, which is the 10,000 Tombs is a network of tombs that are constantly redesigning themselves and constantly falling apart. And it's just a labyrinth, which bits fell off behind you and you get lost and you get caught in spirals. So the Chainmast player is actually building the board as the Stormcast Eternals move around. So, so the goodies are hunting every time they can see around a corner. At the beginning of the next turn, the, uh, the Chainmast player is going to get to place what is around that corner. Every time they lose sight of something or are close to losing sight of something, or just, just before they would lose, I don't know, that, it's a faffy little rule, actually. Um, when they lose sight <laughs> of something, you remove the bits of the board behind them. That sounds really interesting, particularly when in the game end conditions, it says that like if you manage to trap the uh, Stormcast Eternals in a infinite loop that they can't get out of, uh, you win the game. As oh, that's player. cool. Like, you know, or if you, if you make it so it is impossible for them to fulfill their goal by making them go around the map. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really exciting. I'll get to like pull them on a little maze trap them pull them in different directions like if if they ever get split up and they can't see each other and you get to separate the board into two boards they lose half of their party like wow that's great that's really exciting i'll give you a little hint it doesn't happen <laughs> like it's really really like it's so easy for the stormcast eternal to keep their bundle of people together move them around the corner get rid of any chain rafts that are too far behind all of the things that were exciting about this didn't quite land and it's fine if you want to just chuck some dice and point some miniatures at each other and and giggle a bit um you'd probably be okay with this if you really like if you want some stormcast eternals and some chain rasps for your other armies that you're building this might be one of the better ways of getting them. praise indeed <laughs> uh, if you want a tiny dog that's actually a griffin called valiant then maybe this is the game for you um, I mean, no, this is definitely the game for you. It has that. I don't think anything <laughs> else does. It's, that dog might, that dog griffin might be in this game. We don't know. No, it is in this game. <laughs> um, but it, did, it didn't land. It, it, had, it had the feeling of being a Games Workshop thing. Like when you attack, you get to roll dice. You might hit, you might lose. Um, uh, possibly, possibly I'm just really bad at being a chain rasp and like, I could have done a lot more clever things, but I was looking for clever things to do. And as soon as I started to do them, there was a really, really easy, obvious way. The whole game, both of us felt like every decision was obvious. And that's probably the worst thing I can say about a game. Sorry, Games Workshop. We're going to end this podcast by talking about the one and only true and living doctor, Reiner Knizia, uh, arguably the greatest board game designer of all time. And Tom, Tom, hello. You, you, hello. You came to my house a couple of weeks ago and you took home some Knizia because, as I understand it, you are having a great time exploring the good doctor's uh, very best games. Is that right? I am on a niz rampage baby <laughs> i'm having a great time playing all the nizzies getting nizzy with it in the desert with reiner getting busy Doctor. with the nizzy that ex you know if i was 
clever and funny that's what i would have said um, i was really shocked you it didn't because it seemed so like it was waiting for you it was right there <laughs> all, all the pieces were there it was like dangling like a carrot over my stupid brain and instead i just said a load of dumb words about the niz well i have been getting nizzy with it first with through the desert which i stole from you quins and then such was my uh, excitement about running Quincy's designs that i immediately bought myself a copy of blue lagoon because i thought i have to own these boxes i can't just be borrowing them from quins's collection i've got to like build up a, a sacred pile of knitzia games tribute if you will yes a giant shrine of his games which i will eventually burn through the desert uh, I wanted to briefly talk about Through the Desert because I'm going to talk about Blue Lagoon because, and I will unbury the lead here, I think that Blue Lagoon might be a challenger to Through the Desert's throne. <gasps> the, the the prodigal, is that the right word? Uh, son pro- of... Yeah. Prodigal son of the desert. Okay, so what we've got here is... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh is on this interesting tear right now where he's doing sort of updated versions of some of his classic games. So Through the Desert, which I did a written review of on the site a couple of years back, we'll hopefully be getting some more video coverage of it, is a sort of area control game that kind of has a lot in common with Go, where players are placing car- camel caravans on the board to try and carve out sections of the desert that are theirs while linking up oases and getting to palm trees and things like that. Um, and Blue Lagoon is a similar game where you have a board full of hexagons where you're trying to sort of link up different resources and villages. Uh, Tom, I have played this, I promise, but uh, I've <laughs> kind of forgotten a lot about it. The point yeah. is both of these games are very similar. Yeah, they're incredibly similar in their sort of go-like base qualities of trying to sort of connect up uh, like areas and control territory in a way that like blocks off your opponent and secures stuff for you. Um in kind of the most efficient way possible. Um, that's probably butchering a perfectly good description of Go, which you've obviously been obsessed with, but tough. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, the changes that Knizia has made to Through the Desert to turn it into Blue Lagoon, I think, make it a little bit more complicated, but in ways that aren't kind of too superfluous and silly and are kind of wonderful. Um, most importantly, I think that it keeps the essence of Through the Desert intact and then builds upon it in a really nice way. Um, the biggest change is that in uh, you no longer have, in Through the Desert, you have multiple different colors of caravan, these nice pastel camels. Whereas in Blue Lagoon, you just have one color. It's your player color. Alongside that, because you only have one single color of caravan now, you can start your caravans um, pretty much anywhere in the water sections of the board. Um, To quickly give you a mental image of what this looks like, the board is multiple islands separated by little uh, ocean spaces in between them. And in through the desert, you'd scatter these camels down on the board in random places. Well, not random, very tactical (laughs) and clever places if you're good at the game. Uh, at the start and then build your caravans from there blue lagoon because it lets you start literally anywhere at any point in the game um you control the board in a completely different way um however because the board is water sections and land sections to get your pieces on the land you have to first control the water next to it and i think that the freedom that that gives you to kind of snake across the board in your own way shows that through the desert has this kind of front-loaded puzzle it oh 100 percent. yeah the most important move you make in through the desert is choosing where to put your starting caravans so as soon as the rules explanation is over 
even though the rest of the game is pretty accessible, you have to tell people, right, now make the most important move in the game you will make. <laughs> yeah, because if you place your camels in a strange way, like I played this with my dad, and my dad very, very knowingly, uh, he thought was like, well, I think I should control the corners and just put all of his camels in the corners of the board and then immediately got like cut off by everyone else. <laughs> um, but where you place those first camels are going to fundamentally cause a completely different game to spill out of it. But in Blue Lagoon, you can take a sudden left turn at like any time by putting your, uh, they're not caravans, they're boats now, into the ocean in a completely separate place um, on the board. Um, so... That's the basic way that it changes the game. But there's obviously like loads of more little things. So you're placing these routes around. And the first thing you're trying to connect this time are these resource tokens uh, instead of just raw points. So in Through the Desert, you've connected an oasis for two or three hidden points or sorry, a waterhole for two or three points or an oasis for five. Um, in this, you've got this little set collecting game where you're collecting like green token and yellow token and white token. Uh, and the more you have of each, the more points you get. And if you collect a little set of them, then you get an extra bonus and that kind of thing. So that replaces connecting waterholes uh, and oases. And that's interesting. But I think the more interesting change is that in Through the Desert, you're sectioning off areas of the board with your caravans uh, to gain its size in points. Whereas in Blue Lagoon, uh, these islands are the way that the replacement for that. There are eight of these on the board and being on all of the islands gets you points, but then linking the islands also gets you points. And this is, it's just, I think it's super clever because doing it right requires such forward planning and skirting around your opponents because it's so easily seen and blocked just like um, in Through the Desert. But then there's another little wrinkle because after you link those islands and stuff, you're also going to score based on who has the most pieces on the land on each of those islands. And that's, it's such a lovely stroke because you can head off your opponent and then find that you've stuck yourself in a little corner by placing things in a way that means you're unlikely to get a majority. And it's just such a tight scoring system that's so visual and readable and compelling. And I think that stripping it down to having just one color of pieces and snaking them around these islands and trying to score majorities is so much more visual and readable than through the desert where you've all got the same colors of caravans but you're putting like they're defined by the one start space so i find myself like visually looking at the board and not being able to quite judge the board state like quickly and cleanly whereas mm -hmm. in blue lagoon it's so easy to assess like straight from the get-go yeah and then another addition that i remember that blue lagoon makes is that rather than through the desert which is this kind of once through 45 minute game blue lagoon is two 30 minute games on a smaller board because mm -hmm. once you've placed all your pieces out and sort of played a kind of round one you then wipe the board clean and play a round two with slightly different rules and where your starting points if i remember correctly are based on how you performed in the first game yeah um during the the, the first section of the game you'll be placing down these village tokens and the villages are where you'll spread outwards from in the second phase but now you can't just put your stuff anywhere it has to be adjacent to the villages and it's I thought that was such a wonderful moment because this first section of the game is this kind of new, fresh, you know, elaborate and exciting way of like changing through the desert. And then the second phase is basically going back to through the desert um, mm. because you've, you've got these like predetermined starting places. Like I... the first section of the game, when you realize there's a second 30 minute game, the first section just becomes this like joyous and elaborate and exciting way of placing your starting camels in through the desert. Like you're saying that in through the desert, like that placement of those camels is the most important move of the game. And you're making it with like no real, like if you're playing for the first time, no prior knowledge of where you should place them or what's a good play. And in blue lagoon, you get 
to feel the game out for a bit and know where you should put your villages and then you place them and you've actually got a bit of knowledge to play the game before you even put them down. I just, I think that's genius. I think it's so, mm. so smart. Well, here's, here's the thing. You have named all of the very correct reasons why Blue Lagoon is a better and like the superior <laughs> update to Through the Desert. Um, I'm now going to tell you why I prefer Through the Desert. And the thing is, the board game industry is right. Blue Lagoon is, you know, arguably and probably literally a more rich and nuanced experience. It solves the problems. It's more readable. The reason I prefer Through the Desert is, like, I'll give you a few reasons. One, the board is bigger. Two, <laughs> the miniatures are nicer. No. Three, the theme is better. Four, and like, actually, no, but four's the big one, right? So to me, Through the Desert is classic Nitzia because it's accessible. I think when Nitzia really succeeds is making these games that are like, legendarily rich but have like three or four pages of rules that's it blue lagoon feels like so much more of a modern game it's got more weight it's got more rules and most importantly it has a pad of paper to write down your score that you will be referencing a lot because there are what like how many different ways are there to score points in blue lagoon like seven or eight or something five okay maybe six 50 60 60 ways (laughs) to score points that's that's too many but that is a lot quins in all seriousness i found myself having to reference the score sheet while playing blue lagoon to remember exactly how many points i get for like what like a set of three resources or a set of four whereas through the desert is so much more straightforward that like okay i would put through the desert in front of people I know who have never played a board game and it's so poppy and colorful and three-dimensional and simple that I I would rely on them to have a good time. I would not necessarily put Blue Lagoon in front of people who haven't played board games before. What do you say to that? (laughs) I think I would put, I think, I I think- Well, you're wrong! (laughs) (laughs) To me, I think that Blue Lagoon, despite having a scoring sheet and despite having multiple ways to score, when you boil it down like to its basic essence, Blue Lagoon has like, two real ways to score. The first is scoring. <laughs> is that true? Well, no, okay, so the first is scoring based on the island. You score for having things on islands, you score for linking islands, and you score for having the most on islands. Yeah, that's so three like... different, that's not one thing <laughs> just because it has the word island in three sentences. Those are three different ways to score. But I think they're really easy to grasp. And the score yeah. sheet and having, like the thing with Through the Desert that I think is weird is you're still like, holding a lot of like you're still count oh this sounds so stupid but you're still counting up like a load of points at the end no you are yeah yeah and actually people will forget things like uh, in through the desert the points you get for having the longest caravan of a particular mm-hmm. color um yeah the amount so of times people have completely way, forgotten that when taking that game is yeah when i play yeah. through the desert now at the halfway point i remind people that yeah, it exists yeah. that's the way i play it but there's in through the desert like you think about it there's like there's four different ways to score points. There's longest, there's oases, there's yeah. watering holes, and there's areas. And in Blue Lagoon, you're adding <laughs> like the little set collection thing. And like that's you're basically on the same number of scoring conditions. But the thing is, is that I think visually, even though the little carrot, like the camels are really, really lovely, I think visually Blue Lagoon is just so much more readable and so it just pops off the table. Whereas through the desert, I think, very quickly becomes a board of like light shady pastel things that are all owned by who i don't really know yeah through the desert to clar- to to give you the sort of point here through the desert is not a game i would want to play in a low light environment for that exact yes. reason um or the, whereas the blue lagoon yeah. you can play it anywhere <laughs> but would you and, want to no because well, <laughs> it's bad no i'm being i'm being silly i'm being silly but, honestly that I, I this feels this feels like console wars to me where 
I, I, would you agree, Tom, that these games are so similar you wouldn't want to buy both as opposed to buying an entirely new game? Yes. Yeah. I agree that, with that. I, I, I feel that way. It's just that I feel like I've pinned my colors to the mask, the mast off mm. through the desert. But I, I think that like it's it's interesting when you're you know you're saying that a lot of the ways that through the desert is better is based on the theme. I think it has a, a much more classic look and feel and like history to it that makes it look like a very inviting box. I think it yeah I think it's a really inviting box. Um, but also I just think it feels distinct. Like when you mm. when you see through the desert from across the room when it catches your eye you're like that's through the desert. Blue Lagoon yeah. to me looks like any number of Euro games yes. and. As if we're talking about owning a classic, I want the classic game that I have to have a very confident, distinct style. Mm. And and I, I definitely agree that I think Blue Lagoon's presentation is no way near as nice as Through the Desert. I think it looks like a little bit tackier, a little bit more like um, kind of like chunky and rounded and, and yeah, very Euro-y. But also like that was inviting, that kind of style of presentation was inviting to the younger members of my family. And also, the production of that box put it at £17 is how much I got that game for. Oh, which... wow. I was going to ask because I bet Through the Desert is like £40 now. Yeah, like... Yeah. Oh, it, that... that you know what? I, I completely throw my hands in the air and say, if, if you can get it for like... If you can get Blue Lagoon for 20 quid, then yeah. I think the only reason to buy Through the Desert for more money when it's arguably, in a lot of ways, a worse game is if you really like the aesthetics, which I do. Yeah. I, and I, I agree. I think I wish that <laughs> I wish that Blue Lagoon had through the deserts aesthetics. Like I, I like I like the aesthetics in Blue Lagoon. I think that it's nice that it's like a sort of Polynesian setting and it has that nice flow of like people arriving by sea and then spreading oh, from land. And it's but those sweet. resource tokens you're collecting, like it's just such <laughs> abstract shapes. It's just nonsense. It's like a bundle of yellow or a green yeah. flame. Or like just I love no. the uh, the blue one is like circle with handles. It's like <laughs> just yeah. Those are rubbish. And the like, I, I went, and this is a mask token. And my whole family went, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it looks like that. I'm, I'm even more excited for the next Niz on Niz action. But before we move on to Yellow and Yangtze versus Tigris and Euphrates, uh, Ava, you've played Through the Desert, right? I played Through the Desert. I really like Through the Desert. I'm a bit baffled by the... Uh, I, I, I find it interesting that I feel I've never warned anybody about placing the first camels. And I've actually really? always said... Just place them where you like. It doesn't matter too much. Oh, you think <laughs> so? so I felt really awkward throughout this whole thing. I think there's definitely ways to go completely wrong. Mm. Um, so I kind of tell people, put them somewhere, like, you know, don't put the, be, be aware that if you're putting them near someone of the same color, that's kind of aggressive. And if you go into the corners, you might be cornering yourself in. Mm. But like i don't know i've i've not found that it's it's that that kind of tilts the game so much so but do like, you do you like through the desert i love do through you the love desert. It? i think it's brilliant oh, I think it's really Tom, like... i'm sorry sounds to me like it's two versus one for through the desert versus <laughs> blue lagoon I, what i will say is that like throughout this discussion i came really close to wanting to get blue lagoon again really close and Ooh. then just that idea of having like a game of a game of that sort of depth that like I think I think Quinns is right about the score pad. Through the desert doesn't have a score pad. There's only one thing that there isn't a token for that you get points. So you can point to people like you get these points for Oasis. You get these points for having the longest mm. camel. Those things there, they're already points. Look at them. They've got numbers on them. Of course, that points. <laughs> like, so there's only one thing you actually have to spike. Oh, yeah, there's one one point per thing that you completely surround. Right. And that's great. Like, and 
but saying to me, you're going to play, I'm going to have to teach you a game and then you're going to have to play another slightly different game afterwards. <laughs> and oh, I, and, I, I, oh, and I, by the way, there's this score pad. You've got to remember these five or six ways of scoring throughout the game <laughs> because they're all really important. Like I, that's, that's just, that's faff. I, I'm not. I now want to back Tom up because I, I want to stress. I'm I'm being mean for comedic purposes. I think the fact that Blue Lagoon is half the price, arguably a better game and more readable, like that's that's enormous. Like I I think it's going to be pretty hard to argue that Through the Desert is better. But but I like it more. I like it more. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, so now we have something that I don't know if Ava, have you played Yellow and Yangtze? I haven't. No, I actually like. No got a copy of it because i got really excited about the idea the other day so i read the rules last night but i haven't read them. <laughs> nerd alert nerd. Okay, so uh ranakenti is arguably most famous game and arguably the greatest board game of all time is tigris and euphrates this is a tile laying game for two to four players set in ancient babylonia um that models the rise and fall of civilizations but where basically players take turns to put tiles on the board representing temples or kings or merchants or fishermen. And then these tiles fuse together in large cities and the cities can eventually get monuments and players are trying to be the kings or the head merchants or the head fishermen or the head priests of these cities, which is difficult because players are constantly trying to unseat one another. So um, it's, it's a very abstract and difficult game to explain, but maybe the simplest way to put it is maybe I have a city where I'm the head priest um, but Ava is the head priest of the city uh, that's next door. So if those two cities ever fuse, there's going to be a priest-on-priest war in which Ava and I will reveal tiles from hand, and only one of us will win in an explosion of priest victory points for the other for that player who wins. If that didn't make any sense, I'm sorry. You're not going to get much better than that out of me because I think you two would agree these games are pretty horrific to teach or to <laughs> yeah. get your head around, perhaps. It's because yeah. they're, they're quite abstract. They just do not lend themselves to easy teachers easy explanations and easy like being able to put yourself in the kind of imaginative space of the game like yes. trying to get it across to someone like why tigris and euphrates is special is so hard yes um, and i think for me that the reason it's hard to explain is the same reason that it's a classic which is the mechanics that are in tigris and euphrates and as we'll soon discuss yellow and yangtze are so unique which means mm. playing tigris like there aren't games that took that framework and went oh we'll refine this tigris is just tigris so, yeah. or Tigris. I still don't know how to pronounce that. Apologies <laughs> to any ancient Babylonians listening. Um, actually, that's not true because it's a real river that's still there today. That's that's very ignorant of me. Um, but uh, yes, these games are of a piece. There's no games that have used those rules and mechanics, which means that when you're learning them, it's almost like learning to play games for the first time again. Um, but in the same way that Blue Lagoon was a sort of update, a modern update from Ranikinitia of his classic game Through the Desert, uh, Ranikinitia has tried to evolve Tigris and Euphrates in a new box called Yellow and Yangtze. And spoiler, I have not gone anywhere near it for the exact same reason I prefer <laughs> Through the Desert, because I think the current modern edition of Tigris and Euphrates is so beautiful and I hate how Yellow and Yangtze looks. Tom, tell me why it's better. Quinns, I'm going to front of this conversation with one big fact. It's a, it, and it is a fact. It's not an opinion. Yellow and Yangtze is definitely worse than Tigris and Euphrates. Ooh, I, what a, I, it's so nice to have a, a fact on the podcast for once <laughs> rather than all of these opinions. <laughs> um, whereas I was, I played 
so Blue Lagoon was great because I bought Blue Lagoon after playing some Through the Desert. I was like, great. I own like a nice, like a different and more enjoyable to me version of Through the Desert in Blue Lagoon. Mm. And after playing Tigris and Euphrates, which is now a game where if anyone mentions its name, I'll go like, oh, so good every single time <laughs> because it is so good. And I haven't been able to get it out of my head. I had this insatiable need to play more of it. Couldn't find it anywhere uh to buy physically so i got the app version of uh yellow and yangtze uh and it's not quite the same and i'm really struggling to kind of work out uh why um there's a so fifth, i guess so sorry there's a the couple of the two engines that i know as an onlooker are it swaps the square grid mm-hmm. tigers new Euphrates for five-sided hexagon or six-sided hexagons right yes. this is now yeah. a hex-based board which mm-hmm. immediately as anyone who's pivoted from grid-based games to hex-based games know, they are just way less intuitive, but theoretically, on a mathematical level, more complicated and clever, right? And is there also a fifth colour? As if Tigers and Euphrates needed a fifth (laughs) colour. Yeah, there's now... So, okay, so it's now a hex-based grid. There's now more colours. There's now yellow. So whereas in Tigers... This is going to sound like such like inside baseball for like people that haven't played Tigris and Euphrates uh, or Yellow and Yangtze or neither. Um, but <laughs> I the, think I think we need to talk more about Tigris and Euphrates before we go on to why Yellow and Yangtze is different because like okay. looking, at, looking at the thing that is different, seeing it in isolation or the main thing that is different from when what I was reading through, in isolation... Oh, it's such a big thing and it's something that we didn't explain like just to just to like jump back a bit like earlier on Quinn's described me and him getting into a ruck with our priests because our cities got conjoined the weirdest mm. thing about Tigris and Euphrates among a lot of weird things is that when you start that fight it might not just be the priests that are fighting it might also be the fishermen it might also be the general it might mm. also be the whatever the other thing is merchant merchant there we go that's the fourth gender <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so a really core thing because when when a battle is done you remove all of the tiles of that color from the losing side's battle and what that does is completely change the shape of those that city and if you've changed the shapes of that city, that might mean that a different battle is no longer happening. A battle that you had lined up later isn't happening. And I think that thing is huge. I think that is like yeah. such a such a big dynamic to put into it. Like if you can be, it's it's the incentive to attack. Even is if you can be the one that does that, you get to decide what order the fight's in. Which means if you can see who's probably going to win, who's probably going to lose, you can be like, right, well, if I make them lose that battle. I'm not even in that battle, but them doing it will mean that I win my battle later on. Yeah, absolutely. And that so, kind of cleverness is so sharp and pointy so, and stressful <laughs> and horrible and weird. And uh, uh, Speaking as someone who's tried and failed to explain Tigris a lot over the years, maybe the analogy for our listeners who haven't played Tigris and Euphrates, what, what do you two think of this? Tigris and Euphrates is actually more like chemistry than it is a war game. It's It's the... <laughs> Don't laugh already. Like, what I'm saying is that, you know, you have these cities and you have these which, like, fuse together and become, like, um, kind of large compounds on the board. But then you have certain elements on the board which cannot ever coexist. So it's Mm. the idea that if you fuse a city which has a green leader with another city that has a green leader, that's going to cause an instantaneous reaction because the manual just very specifically says that these two things cannot coexist at the same time. They repel one another. And then that causes things to sort of 
like it's almost a game of fusing and bonding and then breaking those bonds all of these mm. little discrete combinations of things on the board did that work it's a good metaphor quins it, it it's a good work. metaphor oh I oh sorry one you two are really <laughs> are, you, are you two being kind because i blew up when you laughed initially is that what's happening no, no we're quite happy laughing at you as well all right f this you can bleep that time when you edit the podcast let's move on i think it's a good point though i genuinely think it's a really it's good really point good. because like one of the things is when you have those battles if you do them in a certain order they just fizzle out and that yeah, might be what yeah. you wanted. You do them in certain places, they explode and like completely destroy the board, and you're suddenly in an entirely different place, playing an entirely different game than you were a few minutes ago. And and that's yeah, there's there's not a lot that's like that. There's not a lot where a single move can end up completely redrawing the board. And yet you never fall that far behind. Like no. there's always scope to get back, which is one of the other really clever things about the game, which is the idea um, that probably is used in some other games, although I can't think of, of many, where you're doing all of this to collect victory points, which you get for placing tiles on the board or for winning these wars. Both those victory points come in the same different flavors as we already described for the tiles and the generals or the, the tiles and the leaders. Mm -hmm. um and what you win on is whatever you've got the least of so you've got yes. to be balanced like i the game that we played at the weekend uh like i was absolutely hammering people like a series <laughs> of enormous wars mostly started by matt to make me fight other people <laughs> but all of those wars led to me will it winning like 20 30 40 red tiles red victory points that yeah. did absolutely nothing for me. It didn't <laughs> affect me. I was dead last in the game because I was doing really well in a couple of places, but not in that one that really mattered. And so it's always quite close. Like, you know, mm. for a dramatic game with lots of huge battles, like our scores were within like three or four points of each other. Yeah, um, I think it was six, seven and nine were the final scores. Yeah. So now we've got that background. Yellow and Yangtze what's the, so we now have a fifth color as which yes. is already and 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 a hex based board which is already making my brain leak i was out of my really ears. excited the reason why i bought this was because i was really excited by hexagons and i thought it looked pretty <laughs> no um, literally I'm sorry, the worst like the worst decision i really like the aesthetic <laughs> of it but i also perversely like i've got uh didn't buy tigris and euphrates for ages despite playing it and quite enjoying it uh because i was digging around for the old edition of it which I did eventually find because I oh, really like the temples in the uh, in the old edition of it. Oh, it's, uh, the old they're... edition is a lot of wood. Yeah, I I quite like the plastic monuments. I hate the them. I despise them. <gasps> I think they're awful. Wow. Yeah, and I really can... don't like the leader tokens. But I've got the old yeah. version, so I don't have to worry about that. Um, very so... very nicely inside baseball for people that don't know uh, what to. <laughs> Let's just keep I talking just think it's really interesting because we spent a lot of time talking about aesthetics between these different versions, and like it is worth <laughs> noting that like so there's important. totally different opinions, there's different editions, there's different there's different yeah. things that you can be rooting. There for. are 100 board games I will not buy because I prefer the old edition to the ex mm. edition you can buy now. Right, goodness, Yellow and Yangtze, <laughs> Tom, please, yes, yes, yes. yank so... me up. <laughs> There is a fifth resource. So there's a fifth color now, fifth gender in, in yellow and Yangtze, <laughs> uh, which are uh, yellow spaces. So in 
actually, I'm going to have to need to jump right back to Tigris and Euphrates just for ah! a second. Just need to go back for a quick second. In Tigris and Euphrates, you have these uh, f- wild points that you can collect, right? Um, but they're really few and far between. There's like six or seven of them on the board at the start. And they will, you add them to whatever you have the lowest color in. So they're like pure points in, in Tigris and Euphrates. In Yellow and Yangtze, the yellow uh, points, victory points you get, are wild. And they are now tiles you can place on the board like black or red or blue or green. Uh, and if you make a pagoda, which is the same as a monument, Integris and Euphrates out of three of those yellow ones, like you can do with black or green or red or blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will give you a constant drip of points that are wild. So they're just pure points. You, there is a way in, Tigris, in Yellow and Yangtze of getting pure like wow. victory points using those yellow things. Um, that's the first change, which I don't like, but we'll get into that later. But generally, you can look at the changes in Yellow and Yangtze as kind of giving every color of tile and leader a distinct feeling to them so in tigris and euphrates like the blue tiles are farmers and like they can only be placed on water and like that's their gimmick and like the red tiles are temples yep. and they're used for war and that's their gimmick and then like the black tiles are like kings or merchants or whatever they are and and, and they have like their own fields but they're still kind of abstract Yellow and Yangtze doubles down on that feeling of each of those tiles being kind of asymmetric. So, for example, the blue farm tiles, they only go on water, as in Tigris and Euphrates. But now you can place any number of them in a row as long as they're adjacent in your go. So as one of your two actions, you can place like a million blue farm tiles adjacently as your go. Wow. Um, If you've got enough of them in your hand. And then like the uh, green tiles, the, the, the merchants... Um, or whatever they are, I forget, those ones will now let you choose what your next tile is when you draw it into your hand, when you place them, and so on and so forth. They've all got like their own little gimmick, their own little rule that will happen when you place them. And then another change is that one of those gimmicks is that the red tiles, which are now soldiers in this game, are the only way you can do war against other people. So when uh, Ava was talking about how you could have... Um, like wars between the fishermen and wars between the merchants and wars between the kings in different cities. Here, war is only ever fought with red tile strength, ever. Which I think now I'm second guessing myself and thinking, is that a change from? Uh... No, uh, what that it's oh goodness, this is more inside baseball. But um, rebellions where someone places a leader in a city and then there's yes. two leaders in that city. Those are fought with red tiles in yeah. a, a, so, original yeah. Tigris. Now, those rebellions are only fought with black tiles and wars are only fought with red tiles. So you only ever count up, if there's two cities ever connect, you count up who has the highest value in red and whoever has the highest value in red wipes all the other, like wins every war in that city, if that makes sense. Oh, wow. Wait, does that mean, so rather than choosing the wars happening one after another, all the leaders are going to be butchered in one of the cities? Yes, there is just one war. Wow, but that okay. But there is one war that just... every player can go into, which I think is mm. an interesting, an interesting wrinkle. But you don't have that thing of if you win the first war, then the next war you're rebuilding stuff yes. and you're taking out certain things, like which is the most exciting thing about Tigris and Euphrates. And I don't think I've ever like slumped so much 
on reading a rule <laughs> in a rule book, <laughs> which is perhaps harsh. Like I am still oh. keen to try it because I think that there could be something. I think that I think that it's a different thing. I think it might be a little bit easier to teach, um, and I uh, I'm still a bit excited by it, but. It doesn't have the thing that I'm most excited about in Tigris and Euphrates. I actually, I'm the other way. I Ooh. think hearing um, this idea that presumably when two cities join in Yellow and Yangtze, then you kind of go around the table and players decide how many uh, red tiles they'll donate to the war. Yeah, that yeah, how yeah. it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then, and then you do you do that for the defenders as well. That sounds mm-hmm. like. A kind of interesting bit of like group think and and bickering and discussion. I don't know if I prefer it to Tigris, <laughs> but I think it's an exciting idea. I mean, it almost sounds um, put a phrase like that. It actually sounds a bit like a, um, a almost a cosmic encounter style combat yeah. thing. That um, yeah, <laughs> it could be interesting. It's... It could be interesting. I just yeah. I mean, it's certainly enough to make these two actually different games. I think that that's yes. that's the thing that I think is I'm glad that there was something in there that made me be like, oh no, this isn't the same game anymore. So yeah, I and I haven't played it, so I can't actually judge it. I should I need to I need to <laughs> I need to row back a bit because I'm being I've been this is already the Ava's really harsh cast, and uh, <laughs> I'm I'm now attacking I'm now attacking like two games I haven't played, which isn't fair or okay. Ignore me, people ignore me it's super strange for me because i i'm taking this from because i've only played the a table a tts version of tigris and euphrates and the app version of yellow and yangtze so i'm fundamentally not getting the desired experience out of either of these games um but the problem like with yellow and yangtze that the fundamental thing that maybe might be why uh you don't like through the uh, you prefer through the desert of blue lagoon is is rooted so much in just like this weird feeling that yellow and yangtze stirs up compared to tigris and euphrates because tigris and euphrates had my brain burning from round one it was horrible it's mean it's like this absolutely like nasty little game that i like cannot get out of my head whereas in yellow and yangtze i found that the game was much easier to understand and good plays were so much easier to make um really in yeah 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 (laughs) so like because everything is now useful in yellow and yangtze like for example in tigris and euphrates you know how you have those catastrophe tiles that you can place uh, yes in which uh destroy uh one area on the board you have two of them for the entire game in yellow and yangtze uh that's replaced with something called a peasant's revolt and to use it you just need two uh blue farm tiles you spend them and then you destroy something you can do it any number of times throughout the game as long as you have the tiles to do it with and like that's one way that like the game is constantly giving you like lots and lots and lots of good options every single turn but because good plays come so much quicker in in yellow and yangtze and like securing points becomes so much easier a thing that i didn't mention is in tigris and euphrates it's four spaces together to get a monument that gives you that drip feed drip feed of points yellow and yangtze is just three and there can be two of those monuments on the board at any one time. So I found myself, in like in almost every game I played, eventually managing to get a situation where, for a few solid turns, I had a drip feed of every kind of points. Like, I was getting like one of each point every single turn, sometimes multiple of the same points, of different points every single turn. Uh, stupid question, but were you, how many people were you playing Yellow and Yangtze with? Uh, I've only played it with three each time which is actually interesting because we played our game with four of tigris and euphrates 
I think I played one four-player game, and I've been playing a mixture versus hard AI, medium AI, and online opponents. I this is very petty of me, but the thing I didn't like about Yellow there was something about the presentation of Yellow Yang, Yellow and Yangtze that really put me off. Oh God, sorry. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I brought up a picture, but like. I, I'm the guy that didn't like Scythe because I hate the combination of plastic miniatures and wooden, like plastic and wood at the same time. Right. Like you can have plastic and wood in a game, but separate them. But, oh no, I'm looking at Yellow and Yangtze now and it's gotten, it's got wooden leader tokens, like, like wooden hexagons for Hive. It's got plastic pagodas and it's got the green tiles that you're putting out that make up most of the board all have the same art asset on. So you've got abstract leaders, plastic physical building pagodas, and then cardboard tokens that show a piece of art. Like this is this is three different aesthetics all <laughs> in the same game. This is repulsive to me. And hey, like the app version, however, is incredibly well presented. So maybe that's the optimal way to play it if you find the components yucky. Yeah, actually, the, I, I, I'm not joking. I think it looks I, good. I think it looks good. <laughs> Quinn's is wrong. I love the feel of it. I love the feel of it. I punched everything last night and I was like, oh, this is all really nice. No, 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 no. <laughs> the pagoda the pagodas don't like they are they are they are plastic, but they 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 sit quite nicely with everything else. Like I don't like the thing I don't like about it that I thought you were gonna say is I don't particularly like the images they've got on the icons, but it probably makes mm. it slightly less colorblind unfriendly so it felt like mm. that was okay because they were quite distinctive and you could see different so yeah i i get where you're coming from but i i disagree i think it's, it's fine nice. i know that i'm i'm particularly this has been a great podcast for disagreements i like it yeah i, I, I actually the that's beef the, cast that's, i love that oh there you go there you go that's the name um yeah, I know. I don't know why. I know this bothers me, but please, I would love to get a straw poll of our commenters. If you listen to this podcast, you head to this podcast entry on shutupandsitdown.com. If you want to leave a comment saying whether I am wrong or right that different materials all squished together in one game is a horrible thing, or if Ava's right and that it's actually really pleasing. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the reason it's pleasing. I'm saying that everything like hangs together really nicely despite that. Just... Oh, I'm just looking at the game. Tom, um, of course, in Tigris and Euphrates, when you create a two-by-two two grid of the same color tiles mm. and then flip them to create a monument, um, those tiles go away, and that's an enormous strategic consideration in Tigris. I'm looking at the way pagodas are put in this game, and it looks like when you yep. put a pagoda down, the tiles are still there. Yeah, they still stay as tiles. Forgot to mention that one. <laughs> it's but if but, but if it changes how wars are fought, if you're only fighting wars with red and black tiles, then what? Oh, this is now just truly. We've gone inside. <laughs> Let's fully get inside into the, the weeds. Now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, as long as we're in the weeds. Yeah. So if a city has like five blue in it and then it joins a city with one blue, if you're exclusively fighting with red, does the blue leader not have any kind of advantage no, at all? Doesn't matter. Okay. So that's why. So then it wouldn't make a difference at all that. Yeah. We, you can cut this whole thing out because it doesn't make a difference that the tiles aren't removed for a pagoda because those tiles aren't relevant to the war yeah. anymore. Right. But it, but it does. Yeah. No, it kind of like it sort of does matter when you think about like red making a red pagoda that's going to give you a drip feed of one point every turn in tigris and euphrates that would mean that those four red tiles go but in and in and therefore decreasing your military strength in tigris right. and euphrates or revolt strength or whatever whereas right. in this it doesn't you just get that three war strength like it's just 
endlessly beneficial to build pagodas all the time. It, it seems friendlier. It's so can, can we can we agree with that? Because the thing is, Tigris is so divisive because it's so cruel and mean and demanding. But mm. it seems like Yellow and Yangtze, as compared to Blue Lagoon, which makes through the desert cleverer, Yellow and Yangtze sort of softens Tigris. Maybe I I think so, and I think that they're so because it's easier to score. Like I could get bogged down in like talking about all the different rules changes and the ways that they like affect the game in like interesting ways and like balancing those decisions and, and various things like i think yellow and yangtze is fundamentally less like random than tigris and euphrates like the way that combat is fought in in tigris is like mm. you just it's just luck based on what you have in your hands sometimes that you can make a calculated decision but if someone just has more of a tile than you they win and you lose and people could not like that but it adds to the drama and fundamentally i think that they're very different games with this same core feeling and the core feeling that I get out of Tigris and Euphrates is mean and tense and exciting and interesting and constantly evolving. Yellow and Yangtze, I feel like I grokked it pretty quickly. And then in every game that I played, I ended quite comfortably first. Like I haven't lost a game of Yellow and Yangtze yet. Um, and I've ended each game. Whereas my, I like struggled to get a foothold in like eight points, right? In Tigris and Euphrates or whatever it was. I end every game of Yellow and Yangtze with like 20 plus you know like points every single time and i know they're different because you can score more points but fundamentally that speaks volumes to me about how you approach each game well this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion and i think that's gonna wrap it up for this uh installment of the shut up and sit down podcast thank you very much for listening everybody and tom and ava thank you very much for coming on and sharing all kinds of thoughts about board games yeah. uh, gotta love I, them eh I like board games. Them. I like and, them too. And most of all, we like you, the listener listening to this. Thank you very much for listening and supporting the show uh, because it, this would be really weird to do if no one was listening. So thank you and goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.